So glad. So Exodus chapter 6, actually I'll start with the 5.22 and then I'll read through 6.9 in just a moment. But I tell you what, while we're turning there, why don't you let me pray with you and then I'll give you a little bit of, of uh, background and then we'll jump into the Word. All right, let's pray. Father God, we thank you for what you're doing. We thank you for what you're doing in, in so many different lives, just even what you're doing in Corey's life and people like that, God, that you, you're so, so intentional about coming and getting us where we're at in our place of bondage, in our place of fear, and in, in the lives that we're living, God, that are literally in a pit and just caught up in so many things that, that, that it doesn't need to be caught up in. But God, that's when you reach out to grab us and pull us out and bring us into your truth. And there is nothing better than, than that, God, experiencing your goodness and your love that you come and get us where we're at, God. You take us out of bondage and you bring us into your promises, God. You bring us into your promised land. So, Lord, I just pray that you'd take that testimony and you'd make that, like you said, the, spirit, the, the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Let that go forth into somebody's heart this morning. Lord, that you're going to bring people out of, out of this place this morning, for out of a place of fear and into life, God, and out of a place of bondage and into freedom. And Lord, we just declare that right now in the name of Jesus, that your word's going to go forth in, in, in demonstration of spirit and power in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. So we're, we're in this third message on the book of Exodus. I want to call this one Four Cups, and you'll understand it uh, a little bit better late, later on in the message. But we've kind of been talking about different things in the book of Exodus, but Exodus, we've said, to a large degree, you could probably call it, it means the exit. It means how we're getting out of this place of bondage and going into another place completely. And the book of Exodus demonstrates to us how, how intentional God is about going to get his people who are in bondage to sin and brokenness and fear and whatever else you can name that was contrary to God's design and will for your life and saying, I'm going to bring you out of that place and bring you into another place altogether. And so he's taking us through this process Process, and we start to see that in the Bible, the Bible even says about itself that this is just not just a book that was written so we could have history of Israel, but he's saying all of these things when they were written, they were written with you in mind, knowing that whenever we could read it later in the future, some thousands of years later, God would say, you're going to find your story right here in this book. And that's amazing. God says they were written for our instruction upon whom the ends of the world have come. They are examples to us to teach us exactly what God wants to do in our life. And so in doing so, he says there's types and shadows in the Old Testament. And what that means is, and we talked about this before, that Egypt is a type of the world system. It's a type of enslavement to sin and the world and flesh and bondage. And Pharaoh is a type of demonic powers. It's a type of Satan who wants to hold us in that bondage and not release us. And Moses becomes a type of Jesus Christ because he goes into that very place to bring his people out of bondage and into new life, right? And Moses, we said, also then is a type of the church because the church is called to continue the work and the ministry of Jesus Christ to bring people out of that bondage and bring them into the freedom that's in Christ Jesus, and, and we see how Israel is the people of God. That's us. That's what God wants to do in our life. And so as we read the book of Exodus, we start to see all of these things beginning to take place. 
But see, in the Bible, especially in the book of Exodus, one of the things that we see a lot and talk about a lot throughout the scriptures is slavery, right? Now, in today's world in America, for the most part, people would say, well, we don't have slaves anymore. That's different. We don't have slaves anymore. But the Bible talks about a different type of slavery. It's not a physical slavery. It's a spiritual slavery. Right? And we are in, actually enslaved to all sorts of different things. In America here, we're enslaved to all sorts of different things. Drugs, alcohol. We have various addictions to money and greed and lust. Uh, we have sexual addictions. We have addictions to food. We have addictions to pornography. We have addictions to all sorts, to technology, to TV, to all sorts of things that literally become idols in our life. And what we end up having is exactly what the children of Israel had. See, because the children of Israel, they knew who God was. They knew who the God of their fathers, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob were. But when they came into Egypt, what happened was is the world around them began to conform them to a false system of worship. They begin to worship what the Egyptians worshipped. They begin to live according to the way that the Egyptians lived. And all of a sudden, they found themselves in a place of severe, bitter, and hard bondage. And that's what happens in our life. Because we were designed for one reason and one reason only, and that is to worship the one true God. You will find throughout your entire life that even the Christian life is not about going to church and doing good things. Going to church and doing good things will help you in this walk, but going to church and doing good things is not the end goal of the Christian life. The end goal of the Christian life is to know and be known by God and to live a life of worship to Him. You will only find fulfillment. You will only find true freedom, true joy and satisfaction in a real relationship and worship of God. That's why sometimes people come to church and they're still not happy. They go to church. They go to all the meetings. They do everything that needs to be done. They serve on teams. They do everything that they think they're supposed to do as a Christian, but deep down they're still miserable. We call that religious people because religious people have a form of godliness. Outwardly, they're going to church. They seem to be doing the right thing, but inwardly, they're empty. They still have not found any satisfaction, any peace. They still don't know the reason they were born and designed. And then they say, well, the church didn't work. No, let me tell you something. The church may not work, but God will never fail you. And if you choose to learn how to build a relationship with God and how to worship God, that is where you will find joy and peace and satisfaction. That's why I'm men like Paul could be beaten for Christ's sake, could be thrown in prison for Christ's sake, but still said that they rejoice in everything. They had an inner joy because they had come to know what it meant to worship God. And see, so what we have really in our lives, all of us, is a worship disorder. Now, in, in, in the Bible, it talks about idolatry a lot, right? And when we read about idolatry, we think, well, we don't have that problem over here in America. Maybe in India where they worship literally 300 million different idol gods and they've got little wooden figures and different things like that. They've got problems with idolatry. But over here, we don't have problems with idolatry. Nothing could be further from the truth. An idol is a God or something in your life that you put more priority on, more time on, more energy on. You give more of yourself to than anything else. It becomes a God to you, Right? And so our, our slavery, what we become enslaved to and addicted to is not outwardly forced upon us. It's an inward choice. Our enslavement is a self-selected enslavement to an idol. 
And so in my own life, when I was young, I chose different things. I chose drugs. I chose alcohol. I chose hatred and bitterness. And I enslaved myself to those things because I chose them rather than choosing to worship the one true God. Now, let me tell you something, though, here, because, because sometimes when we talk about addictions and enslavement to idols, the issue is really not trying to stop doing those things and try to quit worshiping false idols. The issue is simply turning to begin to worship the one true God. Because if you truly begin to worship the one true God, everything else loses its pull. Everything else loses its taste. When you worship God and you get a taste of his presence and of his power and of his goodness, everything else seems very, very small and insignificant in comparison. So what I would say is you just need a taste of the real true God in order to get free from these things. Amen. And so we see this issue. God's trying to bring his people out of enslavement and out of false worship, and he's trying to bring them into a place of true worship. You know, Corey talked about the promises of God. And what we see here is, is, is God is beginning to give some promises. But let, let's read this first in Exodus 5, verse 22, and I'm going to read several verses. But you remember last week we talked about how God said, Moses, when you go in to tell the people that I'm with you and that I want to bring them out of this land of bondage and slavery and into a land flowing with milk and honey, which is a picture of the abundant life, he calls it the promised land, right? He wants to bring us into the promised land or the land of promises. Now, here's what Moses ends up saying because Moses goes in and he does some things, but you know, when he first goes in and tells Pharaoh, let my people go, you know what happens first? What, what doesn't happen is Pharaoh doesn't say, sure, go on out. You guys head on out. Take care. See you. Because the enemy doesn't give up that easy. And when we're dealing with spiritual warfare and we're trying to win people to Jesus, it should not be, uh, uh, it should not be confusing or, 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 or what in the world's going on. We shouldn't be asking these questions when we begin to find that it gets very, very difficult when we ourselves are trying to pursue God and even we are trying to bring other people out of this bondage and, and to come to the knowledge of Jesus Christ because Satan will fight at all costs to try to keep you from worshiping God and trying to bring anybody else into the kingdom. It's going to be difficult and sometimes it becomes so difficult we get exactly like Moses is and here's what he says in verse 22 it says Moses returned to the Lord and said Lord why have you brought trouble on this people that's a good question isn't it? like what if we said that like everything you know in church everything we're trying to do it just it doesn't seem to be working what if we just Lord why are you bringing you bringing this trouble on us Lord here we are trying to serve you. We're trying to do big things and you're bringing trouble on us. This is his response to God. He says, why is it that you have even sent me? Because sometimes when God sends us to do something, it doesn't turn out exactly the way that we thought it would when we first went. Can I get an amen this morning? That's happened to me a lot of times. All right. It just doesn't turn out that way. And then he says, for since I came to Pharaoh to speak in your name, he's done evil to this people. Neither have you delivered your people at all. You have, we talk about prayer of three. You ever started to pray for somebody and it just seems like three or four more devils manifested in them? Like they just got worse. You start praying for somebody and they lose their minds. They get crazy. And then you think, well, Lord, have mercy. If that's what happens when you pray, I'm going to quit praying for them. And what's going on is spiritual warfare is taking place. Pharaoh or Satan knows that as you come in the name of Jesus Christ and in the authority of Christ, that ultimately he's going to have to bow his knee and let you go. So he's going to put up as much resistance as he possibly can to try to get you to back down. 
to try to get you to stop, to try to get you to be overwhelmed by fear and doubt and unbelief so that you will just take a step back and say, no, this is too hard. This is too difficult. Amen. It gets that way sometimes. Sometimes things get so difficult in the kingdom of God that we get a lot like Moses and we start to ask God these questions. But God responds to Moses and he responds to Moses with what? Four promises. Because anytime we're going through something, what God wants to respond to you with is the promises that he has made. You know that the Bible, there are, oh, there are somewhere between three and 4,000 different promises in the Bible that God has made to you that you may or may not even know. And he said, this is what I want to do in your life. But do you know that it cannot happen in your life unless, unless you take hold of those promises by faith? And so when Moses came to God and said, God, I'm struggling. I don't know why you've sent me. I don't know why you're even doing this. It doesn't look like things are going to get any better. God doesn't say, well, you little punk. You ought to believe me. Now, every now and then, God will do that. Last chapter we read, chapter 4, Moses says, Lord, I can't speak. I can't do anything. And it says, and he began to stir the anger of God. I, th I think about a child, you know, when he's doing something and their parents just kind of over here talking to somebody smiling and then the child does something out of the corner and all of a sudden you get... Like it, it kindled the anger of God, just kind of kindled a little bit. He's like, what did you just say? You know what I'm saying? That's what I feel like the Lord does to me sometimes. You know, you know what I mean? And it's not because he wants me to be fearful of him. He's just saying, you know what? That, you, you, you know better than that, son. You know who I am. You know who I've called you to be. And so it kindled his anger a little bit. But Moses comes back to him the second time, even at, I mean, Moses has went through some hard stuff. Moses is the most well-known figure in Israel. I mean, they, they basically come just short of worshiping the guy. And, and the truth is, he was, he was a near failure. I mean, he didn't even start his ministry until he was 80 years old. And when he did, he was so afraid to do it that he wrestled with God back and forth for days. Never stopped wrestling with God. Ultimately, he said, God, I can't even speak. And God said, well, I'm going to send somebody else then to speak for you. I mean, so he was struggling. He was, just, he was the perfect picture of us in my mind. And so in chapter 6, the Lord said to Moses, Now you shall see what I will do to Pharaoh, for with a strong hand he will let them go. And with a strong hand he will drive them out of his land. And God spoke to Moses and said to him, I am the Lord. I appeared to Abraham, to Isaac, and to Jacob as God Almighty, but by my name, Lord, I was not known to them. I've also established my covenant with them to give them the land of Canaan, the land of their pilgrimage in which they were strangers. And I've also heard the groaning of the children of Israel whom the Egyptians keep in bondage, and I've remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the children of Israel, now right here's the four promises that he gives. I am the Lord. I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. I will rescue you from their bondage. And I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with great judgments. I will take you as my people and I will be your God. Then you shall know that I am the Lord your God who brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. And I will bring you into the land which I swore to give to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And I will give it to you as a heritage. I am the Lord. So Moses spoke thus to the children of Israel, but they did not heed Moses because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You know, sometimes even when the word of God goes forth, many people won't even receive what God is trying to do in their life because of anguish of spirit and cruel bondage. You ever dealt with that? 
God, you, you come into certain people and you bring the word of the Lord to them. You know this is what God is saying to them, but they're dealing with anguish of spirit. They're dealing with cruel bondage. And at first, they don't even receive it. So now you're dealing with two different things. You're dealing with, on one hand, Satan that is blinding their minds, that is holding them in bondage, that is putting up resistance in a fight. And on the other hand, you're dealing with a person who is in such severe anguish of spirit and cruel bondage that when you speak to them about God, they say, no, I don't believe that. It's not going to work. Right? And this is what we face as Christians. But God is saying, look, that doesn't scare me. That doesn't frighten me. Because what is bigger than any person's will and what is more powerful than Satan is the blood of Jesus Christ and the promise of God that God gives us and says, my word is more powerful than anything else in this earth. And there is no bondage. There's no fear. There's nothing that the enemy can bring against you that God's promises and God's power and his word will not bring you out of. Do you believe that this morning? And so if that is true, and just like Corey said, there's got to be a point in our lives where we begin to take hold of the promises of God. Let me give you just a few verses on how important God sees his promises. Psalm 138, verse 2, Scripture says, I praise your name for your unfailing love and faithfulness, for your promises are backed by all the honor of your name. Your promises are backed by all of the honor of your name. Now, see, God is trying to bring them into the promised land, right? That means for us, spiritually speaking, he's trying to bring us out of enslavement to the world and sin and into the fullness of all of God's promises becoming a reality in our life. I don't know. See, y'all don't look as excited as I feel when I say that. I don't know. Y'all with me this morning? You look good. All right, I'm just making sure. Secondly, in Numbers 23, 19, it says, God is not a man, so he does not lie. He's not a human, so he does not change his mind. Has he ever spoken and failed to act? Has he ever promised and not carried it through? Has God ever promised to any, any, anybody anything and not carried it through? He's asking you that question rhetorically because he's saying, if I promise something, I'm going to bring it to pass in your life. So in Romans chapter 4, verse 20 and 21, and you put that up there, it says that, Abraham did not waver at the promise of God through unbelief because sometimes what happens is we get the promise of God and it seems so big, so good, so beyond what we've experienced in our life up until now that we begin to waver at the promise of God and don't even believe it. We say, well, you know what? I mean, that'd be great, Clay. I appreciate you preaching it and being excited and all that, but you don't know what I'm dealing with here. And we waver at the promise of God through unbelief, but it says, but he was strengthened in faith, giving glory to God. What that means is he took the promise of God and he began to worship and say, God, it looks impossible. I'm 100 years old. My wife is 90 and you're trying to say we're going to have a kid naturally and that looks impossible, but I'm going to strengthen myself in faith. I'm going to take hold of your promise. I'm going to worship you and magnify your promises in my life. Verse 21 says, and being fully convinced that what he had promised, he was also able to perform. See, you have to get into the word of God and the promises of God until they infect you, so to speak, until they consume you. And then you become fully convinced that what God promises, he's also able to perform. And here's probably my favorite one, 2 Corinthians 1.20. This says, for all of the promises of God find their yes in him. In who? In Christ Jesus. And when he bled on the cross and he was nailed to the cross, he was essentially saying, all of these promises, yes, forget about it. You, it when you read one, you don't have to question, well, is that one for me? 
No, he's saying all of them are yes. And he says, that is why it is through him that we utter our amen to God for his glory. Amen in the Hebrew language means so be it in my life. So what he's saying is when you hear the promises of God, you say amen to them. You say, I take that promise. I claim it in my life. It is mine. I say amen to that. See, so here's what we have to understand. We have to begin to take the promises of God. God gives them four promises, and we're going to go through that. But another thing we have to see, if we look in the book of Exodus, now most people know about this to some degree. Y'all ever seen that old movie, The Ten Commandments or whatever? Yeah. Exodus, some of y'all, about two, about two of us back here in the back. <laughs> uh, so Exodus, if you read the story... They're coming out of Egypt, and when they do, they cross the Red Sea. But before they cross the Red Sea, there are 10 plagues that come on the land to bring freedom into their lives. And the last plague that comes in is they, they take a lamb, right? And each family takes a lamb, and this lamb is supposed to be a spotless, unblemished lamb. And it's a picture of Jesus because, you remember John the Baptist said, Behold the Lamb of God that takes away the sins of the world. And he was without blemish and without spot because he was sinless. And he was a lamb that was given for our sins. And they would take that lamb, and they would slaughter that lamb in the house, and they would apply the blood of the lamb to the doorposts on each side. And whenever they applied the blood of the lamb to the doorpost, it says that death or the destroyer would pass over. And as long as the Lord saw the blood over the doorposts of the family, he says, I would not allow the destroyer to strike you. Now, see, this is the power of the blood of Jesus because when you put your faith in the blood of Jesus, what he's saying is, is that death might take your life here now, but ultimately you're going to live eternally. And when the blood of Jesus is applied to your life, death has no hold on you. Death has no victory over you. We will live forever. But he also says the destroyer, the one that is out to destroy you, destroy your family, destroy your mind, take your peace, steal everything that you've got, he says when he sees the blood, he will not allow the destroyer to strike you. Amen? And so we begin to see this, and here's what's so interesting is that when they performed that Passover and they were freed because all of the firstborn of Egypt were killed and they were freed and passed over the Red Sea, which is really a picture of baptism, they come out on the other side. The Bible begins to say you're going to celebrate Passover every single year for, forever. And Jews to this day still celebrate Passover. And do you know when Passover is for us, when we celebrate Passover, anybody? It's Easter, right? That's when we celebrate Passover. Why? Because Jesus, oddly enough, was crucified on Passover. The meal that he ate with his disciples the night that he was betrayed was the Passover meal. And what's so interesting is at Passover, each day what would happen when they would get up, they would offer a lamb at 9 a.m., and then they would stand. The high priest would stand after they offered the shed blood of a lamb at 9 a.m. And then at 3 p.m. they would offer a final lamb and the priest would stand with both of his arms out like this. And he would declare, it is finished. On Passover, Jesus had become the high priest in the order of Melchizedek. I know that's a little deep. You may not understand it. But he had become high priest in the eyes of God. And what he did was he offered himself as the spotless, perfect lamb forever. And he was crucified at 9 a.m., the same time the Passover lamb was given. And then he hung on that cross until 3 p.m., the Bible says. And at 3 p.m., he cried out to God and said, It is finished. 
to telestai. It means paid in full. That means the payment that was needed for your forgiveness of sins, for your deliverance, for your healing, for your life to be redeemed and set back in order. He said, it's been paid in full. I am that spotless lamb that was offered on Passover. The destroyer, if you will put your faith in me, can no longer smite you anymore. And so this is the picture of Passover, but each time that they did this, even when Jesus sat down with his disciples to go through this Passover meal, which he did on the night that he was betrayed and the night that he went into Gethsemane and the night that they brought him before Caiaphas, the high priest, just before he was crucified the next morning. That night he ate the Passover meal with them. And each time they do that, they would read, they would drink four cups. And in these four cups, they would read these four promises that I just read to you. So let's go through these four cups. And the first cup is called the cup of sanctification. The cup of sanctification. Exodus 6, 6, he says, this is the first promise that they would read when they would drink from this cup. And he says, I will bring you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians. Now, sanctification means to set apart as special, to make holy or uncommon. And see, the first thing is, is that God wants you to understand that you're not just a common rest of the world type of a person, that he selected you for a specific purpose. And in your eyes, you are his chosen. You're his beloved. You are his special one. And what he wants to do is take you and set you apart for his purposes. And so when you get saved, because really this is what this is, a sanctification, this first cup is a picture of salvation. Now, practically, on some level, I've got, I've got Sunday services written out there before you because in our church, look, there's a million different ways that people can get saved. We can evangelize on the streets. We can talk to people in their home. But for the most part, for a, bi a big part of what we want to focus on as a church is that when we have Sunday services, we want to create an atmosphere where people can realize, you know what? God wants to set you apart. He, wants, he calls you special. He thinks you're something. And he wants to offer you new life. And we want to create an atmosphere where any Anybody, regardless of their background, regardless of what they've done, regardless of what they have been through, can come in here, be comfortable and realize, you know what? God does love me and he is calling me and he does want to save me and he wants to sanctify me and set me apart for his purposes and for his use. And then they can believe and they can be saved. Now, at this point during, during the, the, the dinner, this is the point when Jesus probably would have washed their feet because that's what they do to one another in the Passover meal. So he's washing his disciples' feet because he said that I've not come to be necessarily a king over people, but I've come to serve. Not to be served, but to serve. And so Jesus begins to wash their feet, and it's this picture of this washing. But see, there's three ways that we are sanctified in Scripture, and the first one is the blood sacrifice. In Hebrews, if you got that verse in Hebrews, it says, Therefore Jesus also, that he might sanctify the people with his own blood, suffered outside the gate. See, when you put your faith in Jesus and his shed blood, all of a sudden something happens to you. You're set apart. You're no longer a child of darkness. You're a child of light. You're a child of the Most High God. You've been adopted into a new family, and God puts a spirit on the inside of you where you begin to cry, Abba, Father. That means that used to, when you begin to pray, you prayed to God as if he was far off, and maybe he would help you if you cried out long enough. But then when you get saved, all of a sudden God puts a new spirit in you, and you begin to sense that God isn't some far off God. He's in me, and he loves me, and I want to call him Father. 
There's a heart cry that begins to come from our lives because the blood of Jesus washes us. It cleanses us. It makes us a new creation, the Bible says. You know, the Bible says that Jesus became sin who knew no sin, that you might be made the righteousness of God in him. So at the point of faith in Jesus's blood and at the point of confession, as soon as you say, Lord, I believe that you were raised from the dead so that I could be justified. And you say, I call you Lord. You're the Lord of my life. That there's something that begins to take place. And at that moment, positionally, you are righteous. Say, well, I ain't even done nothing good yet. He don't care. He puts it on you. He gives it to you as a gift. He gives you gift righteousness. Now, that doesn't mean that you stay there because sanctification, as soon as you're saved, salvation happens in a moment of time. But as soon as you're saved, the process of sanctification begins. And the second way that we're sanctified is through the Word of God. Now, we've talked about that quite a bit. Jesus said in John 17, sanctify them by your truth. Your Word is truth. And what that means is, is that if you don't have a life in the Word of God, if you're not reading the Word of God, studying the Word of God, you are robbing yourself of the opportunity for God to come in and cleanse you on a daily basis. Because see, the blood of Jesus cleanses you once and for all from all sin, but the problem is, is that daily we live and we walk in a world that is filthy and unclean. Would you amen me on that? We hear things, we see things that are awful, and what happens is, is we pick up defilements, and even though we've been saved and washed in the blood of Jesus, sometimes we think unclean thoughts, we say unclean things, we live still unclean lives, and he's saying you need to get a fresh washing of the water of the Word, and that washing of the water of the Word will sanctify you and begin to set you apart from this world so that you can remain in that place of cleanness, amen? So the Word of God, it sanctifies us as well. And thirdly, the last thing is the Holy Spirit sanctifies us, and He begins a process of inner transformation on the inside of us. See, as we begin to worship God, I'll tell you this, y'all ain't going to believe this, but I'll tell it to you. What you worship will ultimately live on the inside of you. See, some people worship sex. They devote their time to it. They devote their energy to it. They watch pornography regularly. And whenever they do that, what they're doing is they're opening their, the door of their spirit for a spirit of lust and bondage to dwell in them. And that's why they create habit patterns where they continually do that and they continually crave that. And that's in every area of your life, right? Every single area you open, what you worship, what you devote yourself to, what you give your time to, what you think about regularly, all of a sudden, what you worship will indwell you. And God is saying, this Holy Spirit says, but he yearns jealously because he wants to be the one that lives on the inside of you. So he's wooing you saying, no, stop worshiping those things. But before you stop, why don't you just start worshiping me? And what I will do is I will send my spirit and I'll begin an inner transformation and I'll drive out every other unclean spirit. Because he says, what agreement does the temple of God have with idols? and you are the temple of the living God. That means that God wants to dwell in you, live in you, and so you, you begin to open your heart to God. That's why we worship. That's why we praise. That's why we stay in the Word of God. That's why we pray, because we want to be indwelt by the Holy Spirit and not unclean spirits. And when we're indwelt by the Holy Spirit, He sets us apart for God's purposes while Satan is trying to continually use us for His purposes in the world. And that's the war that we have. But see, it doesn't stop there. It moves on to the second cup. And now they begin to drink this second cup. That first cup is really the cup of salvation, the cup of sanctification, right? We get saved. But here's the thing. We need, we, we need to move on past salvation 
A lot of times in churches, we're just like, all, our whole goal is just to get people saved and then, well, thank God we got them saved. Now we don't have to do anything. Just as long as they keep coming to church, everything's going to be fine. See, our, our vision is to win souls and make disciples. See, this is where we enter into this second portion of the cups that we drink from, right? This second portion is the, the cup of deliverance. He says, I will deliver you out of their bondage and slavery. And here's the truth. Salvation is in an instant, but deliverance is oftentimes a process. Because here's the thing. You can be out of Egypt and Egypt still be in you. You can be out of the world and the world still be in you. You can be saved and your life still be a nightmare. That's what some people don't really realize. They think, well, if I just go up and say a prayer and get saved, you know, everything's going to be taken care of. Hallelujah. I wish that was the truth, right? Sometimes you get saved and you find out, man, the battle has just begun. Because you're, you, you've been living 20, 30, 40 years with a mind that has been conformed by this world. You've been thinking like the world. You've addicted to your flesh, to the things of the world. And then you get saved and you get some inner help from the Holy Spirit. But at the same time, you're still enslaved to a lot of things that you've not yet got free from. So when God saves you, he begins to say, that's not where it stops. Now I need to bring you into a place of deliverance. And I need to deliver you from this bondage and from this slavery. Now, if I were going to say, because I want you, I want to try to give some things to you on a practical level. That's why in your notes, beside that, I've got small groups and the encounter retreat. Now, see, we, we just happen to believe that it's very important for people that are in, that are saved and in church to be involved in things like small group. They're, they need to be with other believers, right? And what, really what small groups is, is it's an opportunity to do exactly what Corey just said. He got up here, and I'm, like I said, we didn't even plan that. He just said it. But what did he say? He said, you know, there were some things in my life that I had not shared. They were in the darkness. And he said, and I sat down with Clay, and I brought them to light. Let me tell you something. He told me some things weren't near as bad as anything I've done. You know, I've done some pretty bad things in my past. I, if we want to have sin contests in the past, I'd probably beat you. I mean, I don't know Donald might beat me, but anybody else, I got you beat. <laughs> I've sat down and had some talks with Donald. I said, are you kidding me? <laughs> me and Donald are probably the greatest sinners in here. That's why, that's why God chose us to pastor his place. <laughs> he brought us out of a lot of stuff. But see, Corey sat down with me and he began to share some things. He began to share some things that he was dealing with and struggling with and things that he had done. He was ashamed of them. He, was, he felt guilty. He felt hurt. He was afraid of what that path would take him into. But as he shared, just like he said, all of a sudden the light begins to shine in on that issue. And this process of deliverance, just like he said, there was this process where he was going through, but he still had fear because he didn't want to bring it into the complete light, right? There were still some things that he did, but when he did, what did he say? He said, when he did, when he confessed it, when he opened up, all of a sudden God delivered him of that fear. It delivered him of the bondage that Satan had on him in that area. See, that's why in James 5, 16, it says, confess your sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. You have to have a community of believers that you can be open and transparent with, that you can open your heart up to, that you can confess to. Because look, confession is a powerful thing. And in today's world, you know, a lot of people say, well, you don't have to confess it. You don't have to do that. And, and here's what I'm going to say is, it's not like God is trying, like, you don't have to confess every sin you've ever committed to be saved. That's not what God is saying. 
Because if you had to do that, I ain't no way I could confess all my sins. You know what I'm saying? I I'd, I'd, would be sitting down for months. It'd be difficult. But what he's saying is, is that when you know there is something that has a stronghold in your life and you're aware of it, he's saying, if you come to me and you confess your sins to me, I am faithful and just to forgive you of those sins and to cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And he says, but I want to bring an inner healing into your life. And it very much helps if you can confess those sins one to another and pray for one another that you may be healed. Because in a community of people, when I open up and I share my struggles and you share your struggles, and we say, well, if we find out we're dealing with the same thing on some level, or at least have dealt with the same thing, we can begin to pray for one another and God's power is able to be released to bring deliverance from those things in our life. See, another thing that we do is we do an encounter retreat in our church. So small groups are important to get involved in, but we do an encounter retreat, you know, periodically throughout the year at different times. And, and that literally brings you through openness and brokenness. And it begins to allow you to open up your heart and you begin to point out specifically to some of the things that you're dealing with. We deal with things like rejection, forgiveness, because so many people, I'm telling you, are in bondage because they've been abused, they've been traumatized, they've been hurt, and they cannot forgive that person that's hurt them. Amen? Brings a lot of people into, into severe bondage. And there's sins that we've committed. There's things that we've done, sins that people have committed against us, and we have to bring those things into the light in order to experience freedom from those things. And so that's what we have to do. We bring people through a systematic place of deliverance and bringing those things open and breaking those things out. You know, even in my own life, deliverance for me was a process. I, I got saved. I gave my life to the Lord. I didn't go to church yet, though, but I, I really did. I confessed. I believed. I, I said the sinner's prayer like 375 times maybe. I just wanted to make sure it was happening because I didn't feel anything. And I woke up the same way it felt like the next day. But I kept praying. And so after I prayed, I started this journey, right, with God where I was, I was learning to worship. I was spending time in the Word. I was spending time in prayer. I was fasting. I was doing all these things to draw near to the Lord. And it was an 11-month process of the Lord really getting down to the issues of my heart until He finally brought me to a full place of deliverance. Now, here's what's interesting, because we're getting ready to move to this third cup. You know, Jesus said, John 8, 31, he says, If you continue in my word, you're my disciples indeed, and you will know the truth, and the truth will make you free. What he's saying is, is if you will get in my word and act upon it and put it in action in your life, then you're becoming my disciples, and it will bring you into an encounter and experience with the truth, and the truth is Jesus himself. And when you have an experience with Jesus, he says, it will set you free. And that's what happened with me. I got set free from all of these things. And whenever I was looking to get set free from my sin, it was just really because I didn't want to go to hell, right? That's, I mean, I feel like that's a pretty good idea. I realized that this life was short. And I read in there, you know, I was, I mean, I, I was in there reading one day and it just said, it said, you know, drunkards, fornicators shall not inherit the kingdom of God. I was like, oh, no. What am I going to do? Y'all ever felt that way? I'm just trying to be transparent. No. Some, some of y'all are holy. I know you ain't never done nothing your whole life. Y'all, I was raised in church. I've been good for 35 years. Talk to me about that. Well, the truth is we all need forgiveness of various sins. Just because you don't have one sin doesn't mean you ain't got another one. I got my struggles. You got yours. Amen. But what I wanted to do was get set free. And when I got set free, I thought, well, finally I'm free. That's all I needed to do. 
But let me tell you something. God doesn't bring you out of sin and bondage just to leave you there. There's something beyond that. What I found out is that when I got delivered, immediately God wanted to bring me into ministry, and I hadn't even planned on it. Like at the point of my deliverance, I had not thought about preaching the gospel. I'd not thought about talking to anybody about Jesus. I'd not thought about going to church. I'd not thought about any of those things. But at the point of my deliverance, immediately I wanted to tell somebody about Jesus. Immediately I recognized I needed to get involved in ministry. And that doesn't mean I felt like I had to get up behind the pulpit, but it meant that I had to start sharing with people what Jesus had done in my life. It was an overwhelming feeling in my heart because God doesn't just set you free from bondage and from sin to leave you sitting there and say, well, we got you free now, now just do whatever you want to do. And that's why he brings you into the third cup. And they would drink this third cup. And this third cup is the cup of redemption. And this is the promise that he makes. He says, I will redeem you with a stretched out arm and with great judgments. Now, redeem means to buy back. And the truth is, is we were sold into slavery by Adam and Eve. They forfeited their authority. They forfeited their dominion. And we were sold into slavery. We were under the slavery of the powers of darkness. And Jesus came to buy us back and to redeem us. Redemption can also mean to restore to purpose and your original design. And I like what it says here. He says, I will redeem you with a stretched out arm. You know, I heard somebody, I was, I was talking to some, some girls the other day that are struggling with addiction and things like that. And, and one of them said to me, she, she, said, she said, well, you know, I, th I think if, if, if you go halfway, God will meet you halfway. I said, no. I said, absolutely not. He will not meet you halfway. I said, he'll go all the way across over to where you're at, even when you got your back turned with a stretched out arm and grab you there and begin to pull you. He, he, he ain't into that halfway business. He sees you coming on the porch miles away like the prodigal son and the father. And when he sees you just even coming in the distance, he takes off running after you to bring you back. That's how much he loves you. He's not about going, half, well, let's just, let's just see if they turn first. And then we'll see. And then maybe, I, then maybe I might help him. No, he's saying, I'll come to get you right where you're at. That's how much I love you. I will come to get, I'll come with a stretched out arm. I'm coming after you. That's how much God loves you. And he says, I want to redeem you because what God is saying is, I know the reason I made you. You know, there is nobody else in the world like you. Thank God. But there's nobody else in the world like you and God designed you for a specific purpose, but you cannot. It's almost like this. You, the, the design is not unlocked. Let me tell you something. I go out here and get in my truck, but if I don't have that key, that thing won't start up, right? Now you as a human being, you were designed to be filled with God and without being filled with God, that thing does not start up and operate the way that it ought to operate. God says, I know the way that I designed you. I made you for a purpose. I gave you a certain amount of this, a certain amount of that, and I designed you to do that, and I see this calling upon your life. And the only way you're going to find it is if you begin to connect with me, worship me, pray to me, and let me reveal to you the reason I designed you. And he says, I don't want you to just be free from sin. I want to restore you to the way I designed you and your original purpose. And this is the third cup of redemption to restore you to your original purpose. Ephesians 2.10, 2, right? That says, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. You are his workmanship. 
The Greek word there is the word that we get for poem. You are a poem that he has written and said, this is how I've designed them. This is the way that I made them. And he's created you not just to be saved, but for good works. And he knows how those things are going to play out. But see, here's, the, here's, here's what's dangerous with people, is that, is that they're just looking, so many people that are even addicts, and, and they're struggling with different bondages to sin, that all they want to do, they want to focus on getting free from bondage. But here's the problem with that. You know, Donald and I have had come, people come to us and, and literally say, look, I want you to minister deliverance to me. And there's people, this is going to sound crazy, but there's people that Donald, in it, and it's cut, I mean, he's, he's wise. He knows what he's doing. I'll be honest with you. But he said, he's, he's, he's turned people down before. And you know why? Because Jesus said, if the unclean spirit goes out of a man, it goes into dry places seeking rest. And finding none, it gets seven more spirits more wicked than itself. And it returns back to the same place, finds it all clean and swept up and enters back into the man. And the case of that man is worse than it was in the beginning. See, because if you only get free and you don't replace it with something else, you leave yourself open for a greater attack. And see, I remember, I like this story. I used it one time, but... This, this lady that used to take care of me when I was little, Anna Lee, she, she, she was getting older, you know. Before she passed away, she kept falling out of the bed. She, she had a hard time moving a lot, so she, she kept falling out of bed. And I'd come visit her, and she'd say to me, you know, I just keep falling out of the bed. I don't know why I keep falling out of the bed. And I went in there and looked at her bed, and it was a little bitty twin bed. I said, well, get in the bed right quick. Let me see what happens here. And she'd get in the bed, you know, and just barely roll over. She'd be right on the edge. I said, well, it ain't no wonder, Anna Lee, you keep falling out of the bed. I said, you're not getting far enough in. That's a lot of with us spiritually. We keep falling out because we've not gone far enough in. And what God is saying is, yeah, I got you out. It, it would be like this. The children of Israel came across the Red Sea. They're in the wilderness. And once they crossed the Red Sea, God says, now I want to take you on an 11-day journey into the promised land. But it'd be like us saying, well, I'd rather go back to Egypt. Can we go back, back over the Red Sea there? Or maybe we can just stay right here. Can we just stay right here in the wilderness where there's no food and water? Can we just stay right here? No, God is saying, no, now you have to move forward. You have to get deep into the promises of God, deep into the promised land. And the reason you're falling out is because at some point you stopped going deep into God. You stopped discovering what your purpose was. You stopped looking for God to reveal to you the reason that he designed you. And let me tell you something. Let me apologize for the church worldwide because a lot of times we have a problem finding people help and getting them into that place where God has called them to be. But let me tell you something. And I've sat down with Don. We've talked about this forever. And we're not in the best place we've ever been as far as how we can make this happen. But we're trying. But we believe sincerely that every single person that becomes a Christian has a calling upon on their life to be in some form of ministry. And the last thing that we want to do is put a clamp on that and say, no, we just want to run everything and control everything. Whatever you feel like God is putting on your heart, we want to talk to you about that thing. And really, that's why we have next steps, honestly. It's, it's very simple, and it will not necessarily change your life unless you let it change your life. But the overall idea is that you can come to talk to us, and we can begin to find out who you are, what you're about, what you want to do, what kind of ministry you want to do, and see if we cannot get that going. And you know what? Ministry sometimes smarts, starts with very small things. Amen? 
I remember when I felt like God called me to preach, I started out preaching to like a bunch of 12 and 15-year-olds every Friday night for several, several years. I was there every single Friday night, and sometimes I'd only preach to two. I'd preach to them like there was 100,000 there. I never failed. I got discouraged on occasion. The Lord said, what have I called you to, son? If you're faithful over the small things, I'll make you ruler over many. And so when, when God is calling you, that's why we, that's, look, we, we believe it's important for people to be greeting others at the door. We believe that's a way that, that people feel comfortable enough to come in here and, and feel accepted. It is a gateway into the kingdom of God. And I'm telling you, there are people that will be awarded in heaven, ain't a doubt in my mind, because they greeted somebody at the door, and that was the gateway that unlocked their heart that said, these people might really care about me. S the simplest things go so far away in the kingdom of God, and God is saying, I'm trying to restore you to your purpose and your design, and your primary design is to love people, to be kind to people, to reach out to people, and to begin to walk in that. And so that's one of the ways that we come into that. We, we have to begin to walk out our ministry and to become hungry for God. Now, at this point in the, the Passover meal, Jesus would have taken the bread and broken it. Now, that bread was called matzah bread. It was, it was kind of like a hard bread, but it was pierced because Jesus was pierced. It was burnt with fire because Jesus experienced the judgment of God. And it was striped because Jesus was striped on his back. And you know, they did that 2,000 years before Jesus was even crucified. Why? Because God knew all along. God knew all along that everything written in the Scriptures was pointing to what Jesus would do. Everything. And so... He breaks that bread at that point, and that would be the point that they broke the bread on the Passover meal, and they ate unleavened bread. That means that it was, it was without sin. Jesus without, was without sin. And they would eat that, and they would eat the entire lamb. And it says that lamb had to be ro roasted, not raw, not boiled. It had to be roasted with fire. Why? Because a lot of people will say, well, you know, I believe in Jesus. He's a good man. He's a philosopher. But he's not God, and he didn't die for the sins of the world. If you're going to consume Jesus, you have to consume him as Savior for your sins. You can't consume him as just a good man, just a philosopher with some good principles. No, he was God in the flesh, 100% God, 100% man. And when he came to this earth, he took all of your sins upon him, and they were all punished on the cross. And his shed blood was shed, and that means that there's only one way to God the Father, and it's through Jesus and his finished work on the cross. You have to eat it burnt with fire. That's what he's saying. And so the last cup, if we come into the reason we exist, if we come into our ministry, into our gifts and callings, finally the last cup is the cup of praise. You all can come to the music if you'd like. And the last cup, they, they would take that last cup, and oddly enough, you know what Jesus said about this last cup? He didn't drink it. He said, I will no more drink of the cup or the fruit of the vine until I drink it with you in my Father's heavenly kingdom. Why? Because Jesus will not be completely fulfilled until you have fulfilled your ministry in the earth and you get to see him face to face in heaven. That's when he will be fulfilled. That's his cup of praise. But he says, I will take you as my people and I will be your God and then you shall know that I am the Lord your God that brings you out from under the burdens of the Egyptians and into the land which I promised. See, God wants you to know that Look, that's the end goal, like I said at the beginning. Then you will know 
There's going to be a point in your life where you know, man, God has brought me out of that place that I was, and he's brought me into the very place that he promised I would be in. And now I know the reason that I live. You know, the first message that I ever preached a sermon, I called it purpose because for the first 20, 21 years of my life, I had no idea why I was alive. Couldn't figure it out. And by, when I got into college, it really messed with me. It bothered me. I thought, God, what in the world? What is the purpose of life? Is there any meaning to it whatsoever? And whenever I had an encounter with God, all of a sudden I realized this is why I was born. This is why I was made. This is my purpose. This is my design. And all of a sudden, joy that I'd never experienced began to come out of my heart. See, this is the cup of praise. You begin to have an inner praise. At this point in the meal, they would start to sing psalms of praise to God because it is the fulfillment that God has desired to bring you into. And so many of us, we're not at this place. If you were to examine your life at this point, where are you at on your journey? And no matter where you're at on your journey, hey, as long as you're starting the journey, it's a good thing. You may be at the first cup. You may need to be saved. You may be at the second. You may need to experience some deliverance from your past. You may be at the third, and you need to figure out just what in the world are you designed for? What is God calling you to do with your life? How can you start that? And you may be entering into this fourth cup where you know exactly what you're supposed to do, and it's giving you joy and fulfillment, and God is saying, I want you to go at it even more. You know, that's why on the last one we have the core team and local and global missions. And see, we just believe that once you have figured out what you're going to do, we have teams in this church and we want to build them. And, and, and really, at the end of the day, that's not the whole reason you were created. Don't get me wrong. It's a very small portion. But being able to serve others in the context of the local church is a big deal. It just really is. You know that God's design and idea for the whole world to be saved and be blessed was the local church? That was his, that was his idea. He came up with that. He said, I'm going to have local communities of people and they're going to reach the world around them. And so a big part of your, your fulfillment is going to be found in the fact that you decide to say, you know what, I'm going to get involved in my local church. I'm going to serve people through my local church and I'm going to let that overflow into my home. I'm going to let that overflow into my community. And you will never experience more. I used to experience some form of pleasure when I used to you know, get drunk, get high, but that was nothing in comparison to what I experience whenever I know that I'm doing what God has called me to do. When I'm sharing the love of Jesus with somebody, when I get to share that love of Jesus with somebody and I get to see their life transformed and changed, when I get to see God do what he's doing in Corey's life and in other people's life like that, that's where my true fulfillment and joy comes from. And I'll be honest with you, when it's not happening in my life, I get a little bit burdened down because you know what? Everybody, every single person wants to make a contribution, don't they? Nobody just wants to sit in church every Sunday and never do anything. They want to make a contribution, and we want to help you do that in whatever way that we can. People want community. They want to be connected with people. That's why we have things like small group. That's, that's, that's why we, we try so hard to, to get people involved in different things like that. And finally, people want a celebration. People want to come together and say, you know what? We got some things to celebrate. Jesus is doing something in our life. Jesus is doing something in our home. Jesus is doing something in our county and in our community. And we ought to celebrate together. We ought to love one another. We ought to have a good time doing these things. But see, true fulfillment is only going to be found when you truly dedicate your life to full devotion to Jesus Christ and you allow him to walk you through this process and these promises. Amen. Stand to your feet with me. We're going to
We're going to receive communion in just a moment, but here's, here's kind of how I want this to take place. They're just going to sing and worship, and, and I, we're going to let you all receive, and then I'm going to serve them after the service. But whenever the children of Israel were eating that Passover meal the night before, right, they had shed the blood of the lamb and applied it to their, to their doorposts, and they had broken the bread just as Jesus broke the bread and gave it to his disciples. But see, Jesus changed it. He said, this is my body, which is broken for you. And he said, do this in remembrance of me. And then he took the cup and he gave that third cup, the cup of redemption. And he said, this is my blood, which was shed for you for the forgiveness of sins. This is the blood of the new and everlasting covenant. And I know it's just bread and I know it's just juice, but the scripture says that this is the body, this is the blood of our Lord Jesus Christ. And even though you don't feel anything, even though you don't think you're experiencing anything, I promise you, the destroyer, the demonic powers in your life that are trying to keep you bound, they know exactly what's going on. And when you release your faith in what Jesus has done for you on the cross, here's what it said. He said, God told them, he said, when you eat this meal in Exodus 12, 11, he says, and thus shall you eat it. This is the way you shall eat it. With a belt on your waist, sandals on your feet, and a staff in your hand. What he was basically saying is when you eat it, get ready. Get expectant for your deliverance. Be ready to walk out of the place that you're in because after you eat this and after you receive this, I'm bringing deliverance in your life. So he said, be ready and go out and go out across. And you know that they went out and the Bible says that out of three million, there was not one feeble, not one sick among them. Three million people, some of them old, and there was not one feeble, not one sick among them. Why? Because Jesus, broke, his body was broken for your healing. His blood was shed for your forgiveness of sins, for, for, for life, for your deliverance from bondage. So right now, I just want you to close your eyes for a minute, bow your head. And I want the Holy Spirit, you know, the Bible teaches us that we ought to examine ourselves during this time. We ought to allow the Holy Spirit to do like what Corey was saying, to shine a light into the darkness of our hearts and to, for us to evaluate where we're at. And it's not because God wants to bring condemnation on us, but it's because God wants us free. And he knows that if we don't address those issues that bind us and apply the blood of Jesus to them, that they might have, they, they, they will still control us. And so right now, before as we're doing that and allowing the Holy Spirit to do that in our lives, I'm going to pray in just a minute. But right now, if you're at that first step and you say, you know, I'm not even saved and I want to be saved. I want to start this journey with Jesus. I want to drink from that first cup of sanctification. I want salvation. I want eternal life. I want to know that I'm righteous, that, that, that I believe in Jesus, that I'm on my way to heaven. If that's you here this morning, raise your hand. Let me know right now. Just raise your hand. Let me know right now if that's you. All right, thank you. See, there's no better time really to receive the Lord than at the Lord's table. And we believe this table is open for everybody. So right now, I just, I'm going to pray a prayer. And after I pray the prayer, I, I want the people on the end sections to come forward. And y'all can just come in line one at a time. And we're going to worship as we come. And as we come, I want you to begin to confess whatever it is that you're dealing with before God. Whatever it is that you're believing God for, for deliverance. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you. And Lord, as we come to eat from your table, to eat of your body, to drink of your blood, 
We just bless the elements in the name of Jesus. And we ask, God, that the power of your blood would uproot the sins that we're struggling with and dealing with, the bondage that we're struggling with. And God, I pray that as we receive your body, Lord, that you bring healing spiritually, emotionally, and physically into our bodies and, and into our minds and into our hearts. But Lord, I, I just pray right now, Holy Spirit, that you would bring everything that's in the darkness of our hearts to light so that we can confess those before you and that you can bring freedom. In Jesus' name.